Thank you. Well, hello and welcome to the first ever live edition of Nevermind the Bar Charts. Uh, my name's Stephen Toole, and uh, we're bringing this to you from the podcast Live Festival. 400 people have booked in for the day, and literally tens of them have stayed for the graveyard <laughs> slot. I'm delighted to say Brendan O'Neill was our warm-up act, and the, uh, the crossover in the audience is, is very clear between uh, revolutionary Marxists and liberal Democrats. So uh, welcome to everyone here. Um, uh, it's been a fantastic day. Um, people have been drawn by big names such as Rod Little, Stephen Bush, Sophie Ridge, and us. Um, so, uh, but apologies if you were hoping to hear from my co-host, Mark Pack. Uh, he is, uh, I'm afraid, not here today. He, is, uh, he has a good excuse, though. He is running for the post of Liberal Democrat Party President, and it's one of only two posts in the party which is voted for by uh, 120,000 Lib Dem party members. So he is currently husting for his life in Shalford Village Hall near Guildford. Um, so there you go, folks. Join the Lib Dems for a life of glory and glamour. Um, but don't worry, it doesn't mean you're stuck with me um, for the next hour only, um, because I'm joined by two fantastic special guests for this uh, Never Mind the Bar Charts. Um, we had to choose the title for this podcast um, quite a few weeks ago, and we tried to think of a title that wouldn't date too badly, and that would be quite niche for our kind of audience, and so we chose, is Dominic Cummings a genius, thinking that would separate the, uh, the sheep from the goats of those who had actually heard of Dominic Cummings um, at the end of August, uh, and uh, of course, it's, uh, it hasn't dated at all. Benedict Cumberbatch's understudy uh, wasn't that famous, except with political nerves, but now everyone is doing classic Dom jokes. Um, so, here to help me get inside classic Dom's OODA loops are two people who have worked with Dominic Cummings in government. So I'm delighted to welcome um, Polly McKenzie, who is the chief executive of the think tank Demos. Uh, she worked for Nick Clegg for 11 years. She helped write the 2010 coalition agreement and was the Director of Policy for the Deputy Prime Minister from 2010 to 2015. And also by Sean Kemp, who was a, uh, is a former Number 10 Special Advisor and Head of Political Communications for the Liberal Democrats. So thank you both of you for, for joining me. Can I start off, um, perhaps with you, Polly McKenzie, first? What was it like working with Dominic Cummings? Um, so I'm going to have to disappoint because I, I literally met him once. <laughs> um, uh, but it's a great anecdote. It Tell is, me. <laughs> it, it, it's honestly, it's one of my proudest achievements in my life. Um, so, obviously, Don worked for Michael Gove. He originally didn't work for Michael Gove because um, it, he was forbidden by... Coulson. Andy, Andy, Andy Coulson. Andy Coulson. Andy Coulson thought he was untrustworthy. That, that, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>, Moments <laughs> reflection of that Andy Coulson vetoed someone who would be uh, exactly. too dangerous to the but reputation Andy, of government. Exactly. If Andy Coulson thinks that you are below a certain moral standard, <laughs> then, um, then I think, frankly, you need to think about yourself. Anyway, so after Andy had left to... Uh, I don't know. Did he go to prison? Yes. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> I, mean, I, I like the way you, you, you describe it like it was a career decision. <laughs> yeah, after that, um, then Dom came to work for Michael Gove. And, and, and having initially had quite a good relationship around education policy between the two coalition partners, 
it started to fragment and uh, caused a lot of trouble um, over some things like national curriculum policy because it's a bit stupid to say we're having a national curriculum that will so that every child has the same core of knowledge whilst still allowing most schools to opt out of teaching the national curriculum. And we tried to address this with Michael Gove, it didn't go very well. So it got to this point where Michael Gove and Nick Clay were kind of arguing all the time. But Dom was sort of holed up in the Department for Education. Uh, we were holed up in the Cabinet Office and, and mostly just sort of throwing uh, aggressive uh, Cabinet correspondence at one, and the, one another. And unbeknownst to me, Dom decided to send a peace mission of himself over to Number 10 to meet me only because the, I don't know, I'm, I'm just not very organised. And I didn't have my BlackBerry with me. And uh, you had to have your BlackBerry and this other security device in order to unlock it. Yes. I had, it, complete nightmare. Not, <laughs> I was not suited to that level of uh, technological security. So I had absolutely no idea that this meeting had gone in my diary and that Dominic Cummings was waiting on a peace mission to uh, remake friends with us. Dominic Cummings and Peace Mission. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So he was waiting in, in the number 10 like cloakroom among the coats for 90 minutes. <laughs> uh, whilst I was completely benignly trundling away over in the cabinet office doing work. But as soon as I crossed into number 10, uh, my you know, PA found me and was like, uh, Dominic Cummings is waiting for you. Um, and I, I've been assured that he thought at the time that this was some kind of ballsy power play by me <laughs> to force him to wait. Uh, and we took the meeting uh, and I had no idea really that peace needed to be made. You might and be the source of all these rage. That might, I, might it be was real, just okay. the most bizarre <laughs> thing in this time. But anyway, so he, he felt quite, you know, he was proud that he stuck out against my power play by waiting for 90 minutes for me for a complete uh, mistake, anyway. So I've, I, that's, that's the only damage I've really done to Dominic Cummings since I made him wait for 90 minutes. Um, and that, as a result, he took the job at Vote Leave and we voted Brexit and everything is down all, to that it's one incident. Fun. I think okay. it's worth remembering that, so in number 10 during the coalition time, there were uh, three special advisors across government who hardly ever went into number 10 and were frankly disliked by the Conservatives well, by a lot of the Conservatives, particularly around David Cameron, because they did their own thing, they didn't obey any orders, and they considered any attempt to make them do what they had to do to be absolutely disgraceful. And they were Dominic Cummings, Fiona Hill, and Nick Timothy. Whatever became of them. Um, and they never... So we had weekly, there would be a sort of coalition. All the coalition special advisors would be gathered into the um, state dining room, top of number 10, and attempt to make us all sort of suitably coalition-friendly. Um, and Spad School, as it is still known, I, I, I see. And um, they would never go to that. They would, so there are almost more names that you heard, often mm -hmm. Craig Oliver shouting, being very angry about the latest thing that Fee had done or the latest thing that Dominic Cummings had done. And they sort of had become, they became sort of these weird sort of bogeymen figures. And Dominic was one of these, one of these strange figures. And, and you have to remember, I, I find it quite ironic now, and you see... Um, I've got a bit of sympathy for him at number 10 saying I'm going to get more control over the special advisors. He was a completely uncontrollable special advisor. And it wasn't he... And if you read his blogs, he now... You can see he talks about David Cameron trying to get them to do things on education policy. And he's outraged that the elected prime minister should attempt to have some say of what education policy was. Um, it's completely different, obviously, to his stance now. And you read the accounts of him telling special advisors to be disciplined. He was extremely extraordinarily undisciplined in the sense that he would um, 
you'd get these incredible briefings. There wasn't, I mean, people might remember, maybe don't, it's nonsense, but there was a huge, huge row in, in, well, in the papers between like Maria Miller and Michael Gove about the best way to commemorate World War I. And there were these fiery quotes about Maria. She's an idiot. She never went to, she clearly has never studied history. So this was all Dominic Cummings. Um, he sort of laughs around there. And now he's the guy who sort of lectures the government about the importance of staying on mission and so on. So there were these weird shadowy figures. Um, I, the title is, is Dominic Cummings a genius? I think the truth is he's, there's always this desire to have a shadowy, usually male, genius behind the scenes at number 10, some sort of... He's, not, he's, he's a bit of... He's very smart. He's also quite eccentric. I think people who have worked with him on the Leave campaign, I know, are actually full of praise for him about the way he can structure a campaign. Where I think he is a genius is in two ways. One is he has learned that the best way to impress political correspondents is to basically go to Waterstones, flick through the smarter thinking shelves, find a few books that you can quote <laughs> to people, and they'll go, oh my God, this one's a reader. So he like quotes <laughs> Black Swan or Nudge Theory or something. And, and everyone's incredibly impressed. The other thing I think is quite impressive about him is that he's, he's turned this, his whole shtick into this idea that Dominic Cummings wants chaos. Anything chaotic happening, and everyone goes, oh, it's Dominic Cummings. Doing classic this Dom, the it's plan classic is working. Dom. And this is brilliant, because it means he can cock everything up, and it can be completely chaotic. And everyone goes, oh, it's just what he wants. He's got many Uda loop now. They don't know what they're doing. And so I now look back and think, if I'd, if I'd made my shtick, that what I really wanted to do was get the media, media giving the Liberal Democrats terrible coverage... I could say, no, that classic Sean, it's another awful story in the Daily Mail. But, so he's, I think the truth is he's a mix. He's a smart, good strategic campaigner who is acting now, or demanding everyone in government now acts in a way that he's a million miles removed from the way he acted when he was in government. The very last thing on the slightly long ramble, I would say, is it's worth remembering that mindset, when he was in education, sometimes he would just be sent away for periods. They would, Michael Gobo would ever say, Dom, you've gone it's a bit much, take a month off. Yeah. That, he's not going to be taking a month off. And that's, I think, it, when he reaches that sort of frenzy, I think I will be interested to see how that pans out. Because he, he absolutely believes that uh, kind of determination, discipline, and ruthlessness with your opponents is the way to get things done. And, of course, there are times, and certainly if you spend all of your time reading war strategists, <laughs> Um, when that is absolutely correct, and, and you can't give quarter to your enemies. But the problem is, he, he, I think he spends too much time thinking of too many people as enemies. And you saw that with this, this idea that in education, there was basically all of the civil servants in the education department, 98% of teachers, 98% uh, of people in local education authorities, every councillor, all of those people were the education blob. Oh, and education academics. And every single person who'd ever thought about education, except for him and Michael Gove, was completely and utterly wrong. And they needed to be destroyed. And the problem is, if everybody is your enemy and you've obliterated them, then who exactly is going to run the schools afterwards? And yeah. the same is true for, you know, running the country or, or parliament. That, yes... You, uh, politics sometimes is about ruthless uh, kind of charging forwards towards your mission, but often it's also about making friends, and I don't think that's a skill that he necessarily I think has. the military strategy... I mean, I, I, I don't know if many people have read his blog, they are, you know, you have to take a week off to do it, but he does love the military strategy stuff. And, the rest. and in some, it's quite interesting. It's very sort of male... You know, there are always... It's like you get these business books that are always like, you know, what Sun Tzu can teach you about how to, you know, run your department and be a leader or whatever. Um... 
I think some of it is interesting and, and worth looking at in the sense that it can help you in a binary debate. I think that's why he's a good referendum campaigner. Yeah. If you're in a binary debate and you want to basically yeah. smash your opponent, I think he's actually got some pretty interesting theories and has proved to be surprisingly effective at it. The test is what it's like in politics. It's a lot more complex. There's a lot more need to, to compromise and so on. I, I think the jury is massively out on that. Truth is, with all of these, the shadowy number 10 figures, though, if you win an election, you're a genius. If you lose an election, even if it was due to bad luck or whatever, then you're a complete fool. Um, and so we'll see. If, they, if, if the Conservative Party wins the next general election, whenever it is, everyone will say, what an amazing, what an amazing genius he was. Steve Hilton was considered this, you know, you know, we had these same kind of debates about Steve Hilton. David Cameron's... Uh, uh, great Sven Garley and so on. And now, you know, complete charlatan, I'm sorry. But absolute <laughs> charlatan. Um, and who's someone who probably has far more experience than I did of. But, um, but I think they're actually, I think they're, they're very really similar. similar, and yet they couldn't stand each other. And I understand that Dom <laughs> Cummings was the person who ran the spoof Steve Hilton Twitter mm. account for all those years. Yeah, um, okay. And they do not understand how similar that they are. Um, in, in they, they think that only they see the world the right way, that most of the civil service just needs to be obliterated. You know, one of Steve's crazy ideas was to abolish all press officers. Uh, and just have a blog for each department. He wanted civil <laughs> service to be small enough to fit into Somerset House. Oh, yeah, and then, and then we, when he launched the red tape challenge, which is a perfectly reasonable idea of checking through systematically all red tape, all bureaucracy, to see, is it actually needed, right? Well, it's a lot of work, but fine. But he, he, he insisted that the Prime Minister say, print out, like, all of the European directives and all of the kind of statutory instruments that have been passed in a decade, and stand in this big room and say, we're going to whittle that down to a, a slim paperback. Like, no, you're not. You are not going to do that. There's just, you know, actually, you do need some complicated rules about how exactly you make sure eggs don't have salmonella in them. Like, that's never <laughs> going to be simple. So, question, can I just question to you both on... Because uh, the thing that strikes me about the Dominic Cummings strategy, which, as you say, is all about the kind of othering of your enemies, whether that's Parliament, the EU, judges... Uh, your own rebel MPs, whoever it is, it's got to be another who is uh, part of the opposition who you can then vanquish and destroy and become the winner. And it is that very kind of binary approach, as you say. Um, was there an alternative? Because Theresa May had surely exhausted all the kind of diplomatic friendly options of trying to make friends with different people at different times. Is there not an argument that uh, the, the strategy Dominic like Cummings came up with which may still work, as in the Conservatives may well at the next election whenever it is win a majority, and if they do, it will be thanks largely to the strategy he's put in place. Is the, was there ever an alternative that he could have pursued that would have actually resulted in Boris Johnson being in that position where he might still plausibly be an election winner? Well, I, I just would question the idea that Theresa May's strategy was about being diplomatic and making friends. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was like that in approximately the last three months when she yeah. had exhausted the crush the saboteurs strategy, where she, you know, Brexit means Brexit, there's going to be red lines, the Chatham House speech, her conference speech, she went on and on, characterising real Brexit as getting out of everything. And only when she then lost her majority and then couldn't get the meaningful votes through did she start then to think about, actually, I might need to pal up with some of those Labour people. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to uh, kind of with hindsight, say it would have been so much better if a leave prime minister who mm -hmm. didn't need to prove their leave credentials had taken over back in 2016. But, you know, we, we, can't, we can't go back to there. I, 
Boris Johnson and Theresa May's strategies are just actually really similar. It's just that his is happening faster and he's more likable than her. That, that's really all he's got. And the assumption is he can charge through because he's... I think as well... I mean, I don't necessarily think Dominic Cummings and the Tory party strategy is wrong. I think it's very hard. And I think if you look at what the, the electoral strategy of trying to... Um, I hate this sort of clichéd win the leave seats in the north thing, but you know, basically say we're going to lose seats in Scotland, we're going to lose seats in Lib Dems in the south, and we're mainly seats like St Albans, or but we are going to pick up all the, we're going to rebuild the Brexit alliance. I think there's, there is a logic to that. I think it's very hard. There is logic to that. I always, I do think there has to be a health warning, and I think we're all probably been guilty of it in however long we've been on stage already, in being slightly uh, dismissive of people who are divisive when the Liberal Democrats are now running an election <laughs> on a campaign of revoke. And I think that what the Lib Dems have spotted and that what the Conservatives and Dominic Cummings have spotted is that politics seems to be moving into very much pick-a-side territory mm. Mm -hmm. and that the political sweet spot to be. However, whatever you may think it is means for the public discourse or whatever else, that you have to be one or the other. The days of saying it's about compromise and coming together and all that, those days are gone. You're this or you're this. That's what Brexit referendum has done to us. And I, I will always put this health warning in of it can be fine to say they are being quite divisive. Lib Dems are no longer mm -hmm. quite the let's, why can't we all just get along party that we might have once been a while ago. We're on the, we're, we've now firmly plonked ourselves on the other side of that debate. And we're almost welcoming the, we almost welcome the divisiveness. I don't say it's a good thing or a bad thing, but we do. Yeah. And we think there's a bit of advantage in that divisiveness. No, I, I think you're completely right. Um, and it may be that the strategy, however much I don't like it, is the best strategy for the Conservatives. It also might be the best strategy for the Conservatives and still not deliver them a majority. Yeah, I think Because, so. you know, parties are coalitions. The coalition of people who have voted Conservative includes a, a, a large number of people for whom that divisiveness is not appealing. Uh, and are there enough people in that camp who will vote for them? We, we actually don't know, and only an election will answer, answer the question. And there's lots of interesting chat in Westminster at the moment about, within the Conservative Party, and it's got in the papers as well, and I, I frankly believe it, that Lyndon Crosby has basically said, you're not going to win. This will not work. Mm -hmm. Now, he, he might be wrong, but it's, I, I, I do think the coverage of, you know, and part of the reason why, I mean, I'm sort of, I've done very well out of sort of turning up on various programs or whatever and talking about Dominic Cummings. I'm slightly sick of Dominic Cummings, no offence. But it's like he's, he's become this totem for everything about, about politics. But I, I think it's, it's, he's become a sort of personalisation of everything about the Conservative Party and everything about their strategy. I think people got slightly obsessed about the person, in, understandably because of who he is. Um, I think that it's kind of meant we've not actually had as much debate around what that divisiveness means and actually what his political strategy is and what those seats are after and what it's like, yeah. it's like there. It's become very personalised about this slightly random, weird-looking bloke who turns up in Downing Street wearing a hoodie. Isn't he nuts? And have you read his, like, 50,000-word blog? Um, I've, I, we've kind of lost touch with the fact that, yeah, but do what do working-class people in the Midlands and the North who voted for Brexit actually think of their lives and the impact of austerity and stuff? All this boring stuff is the most worthy Lib Dem point to make in the world, but I, I think one of the offshoots of the media's obsession always with these charismatic individuals in number 10 is that it turns into this weird parlour game of who's the smartest um, and kind of loses some of the 
the point of what politics should be about. That was such a worthy thing. To do you get? Do you understand the Conservative strategy as you know, someone who's worked within the Liberal Democrats and therefore seen it from the outside? I mean, it seems odd to me that. Uh, I can understand the tactics of it, and I can understand the short-term self-interest of it, of saying, uh, let's try and unite the Leave voters around the Conservative Party as the viable party that can win the next election, uh, and that will hopefully deliver a Conservative majority uh, for the first time since 2015, uh, and see us back into government. What I don't see, really, is how the Conservatives beyond that pursue the kind of government they want to lead, which would then still appeal to those Leave voters in the small towns in northern England, to stereotype it for a bit. I don't quite see where they're, you know, Boris Johnson, who is, a, is a, an authentic Conservative in his economic policies, uh, and the Conservative Party itself, which is, uh, in its kind of most pure form, is the ERG, it is that um, Thatcherite tribute group. I don't quite see how, beyond Brexit, and that kind of cultural separation issue, where the Conservatives in the election beyond that managed to sustain that electoral coalition built upon Labour Leave voters? I think, again, partly driven by Dom, it seems, because it chimes very well with what he's written about before, is the stuff they're going for is not classic Conservative policy or economics. That, you know, the Prime Minister didn't announce any tax cuts at their conference, the Chancellor announced an increase in the minimum wage, mm. quite a substantial increase in the minimum wage. They're talking about 20,000 new police officers. They're, they haven't actually got the money, but they're, what they're talking about is 40 new hospitals and big new roads, and he will come out with some you know, completely impossible infrastructure dream, like whether it's a bridge between Ireland and Glasgow or something. Um, and actually, so I, I think that that they are not interested, actually, in, in certainly in fiscal conservatism. At the moment, no, because they see that as the way in which they can get Brexit delivered. And they recognise there is a tactical rationale behind saying, OK, let's spend all the money yeah. that we can um, so that those Labour Leave voters will come over to us and then we can get Brexit done. My what question is, what happens beyond that? Once Brexit, that if Brexit is done, would they still I be happy with that kind of economic policy? Because I, but I think it kind of relies on... You just defined conservatism as being Thatcherite conservatism. Thatcherite conservatism, when it first came along, was not considered conservatism. So you think they're kind of regressing to a kind uh, of Macmillanite... The, the, the history of the Conservative Party is of a party that can evolve and adapt over time to stay true to certain core principles, but will adapt to win elections and mm -hmm. will move with... The, that's basically... So the Conservative Party's aim is to be in power, yeah. and what, beyond that it's a bit Boris more... Aim, and I think that's what know? Boris Johnson yeah. comes from. The weird thing is, you have the intake of MPs into the Conservative Party, particularly the younger ones, are very right-wing, and are more your sort of uh, Thatcherite, sort of libertarian, fiscally conservative types. I, I, but, you know, the Conservative Party has proved very effective at sort of moving and adapting with the times. If it were, if Boris Johnson wins an election and then says, right, this is the path we're going on and this is what I think works, I don't think the Conservative Party are going to sort of, you know, clutch their pearls and go, oh, no, we can't do that, we're going to do this. I think they will, they will try and find a way to make it work. I, what, I'm, what I'm currently struggling with is that... that <laughs> Sorry, it's Potter. Polly Sam is uh, heckling me. Um, <laughs> Makes a change from Polly heckling you, I suppose. There's a slight... We focus a lot on the, what's going on in the Conservative Party, like this, you know, Steve Baker's and the ERGers of this world. There's also something slightly weird going on with other bits. Philip Hammond 
has suddenly <laughs> gone from being the most boring, literally a man who's built an entire <laughs> political career on being the most boring man I can promise you you will ever meet, to yeah. a sort of tub-thumping populist who's coming out yeah. with all these, these conspiracies. Well, it's Philip Hammond, like, Dominic Breeze, David Gork. You know, just, so the, the driest economic kind of conservatives I'm not sure where all that leads, yeah. where you just suddenly very dull, very straight down like conservatives are suddenly now like coming up with stuff that I would laugh at if it was on a blog. Um, and so I'm not, so I don't know how, it, how that whole coalition holds together. Yeah, it might get strained at times. The big parties, Labour and the Tories in particular, they, they can deal with their strains. I think they can, at the end of the day, if they think they can win. Yeah, they'll put up with anything. Uh, they, you know, mm -hmm. they, they suck it up. We've seen that, goodness knows we've all seen that in every single political party over the years. It's my cheery. <laughs> okay, well let's move on then. We've talked, we've dissected um, Conservative Party and talked about classic Dom. Brexit, which we've touched on already. What do you want to happen? You personally, what do you want to happen next? I honestly can't decide. Because there's part of me that just wants us to revoke and uh, just stop this horror that has just... I'm so, bo I'm so bored of talking about Brexit even... <laughs> Uh, let alone... And you head up a think tank, so... We don't, we don't do Brexit. That is, that is my one strict rule. We'll do any topic, but not Brexit. Um, and so part of me is really drawn to that idea of let's, let's just sort of turn this off and pretend it never happened, make it stop. Um, and then there's part of me that, that, you know, really kind of toxic part of me that actually wants us to kind of crash out with no deal so that this bloody country can learn a lesson of that actually some of these experts or the businesses or the farmers who are saying, oh, hello, we have to, uh, this is going to be horrible, will be proven to be right. And that, that given how destructive uh, to our political discourse it, it has been, the kind of the project fear narrative, that anybody who ever says anything bad happens is a sort of pessimistic um, uh, kind of traitor to the nation. Uh, but of course, you know, the price of that lesson would be extraordinary economic harm to people who, who don't deserve it, whether they voted for Brexit or not. So uh, I, I have to suppress that toxic part of me. Um, you, you've done it very well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I then come back to, you know, actually, the next great prime minister will be somebody who does manage to heal these divisions and unite the country somehow. And I, 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 I do think the, the best way forward, if any Prime Minister had the gumption to sort of push for it, would be the sort of Norway-style um, settlement where we are, you know, half out of the EU, uh, out of the institutions, off the conveyor belt, all of that stuff that the Brexiteers worry about, but without doing kind of serious harm to our economy. But I cannot see in this divisive time that Sean has described how, how, you, how you ever get to that. What about you, Sean? Where are you uh, at? The, I, I, Have you got a toxic part of your personality well, you want to let out? I've, I've, yeah, that's why I was a spad. Um, <laughs> the, I, the, like, the, the correct Liberal Democrat answer me to say is I would like the Liberal Democrats to win 500 seats mm -hmm. and therefore revoke and, and all the rest of it. Um, I, I, this may, I always feel like a bad Lib Dem saying this. I feel slightly ashamed. I get slightly uneasy about the implications of ignoring the result of a referendum, if I'm honest. You mean democracy? I, I think, so here is my, this is what I usually say to people after a couple of glasses of wine. Like, liberal democracy is quite a fragile thing. You only get it, people, you get it because people fought for it. Um, and it's quite easy to chip away at. God knows we're seeing that at the moment. 
And I do get nervous about chipping away at people's sense of legitimacy in the results of elections and the results of referendums and so on. In my dream scenario, there would somehow be, if there was a second referendum, it was won by such an enormous margin, everyone accepted it. That was what I would, in my heart of hearts, I would love that. Mm -hmm. Do I think that's likely? Would it no. Be like 95 you just have to be so <laughs> enormous. 70, um, so, in my heart, I just want to join the EU because I think leaving is going to be catastrophic. I, I, if you would say to me, what do I think is the most realistic outcome, I would like to get the softest possible Brexit that causes the least harm to people. But I, I, and the honest answer, I can't give a straight answer because I find myself pulled in different directions. A bit like Polly described, actually. I find myself pulled in different directions. Because I know what I would love the outcome to be, which is that we stay in the EU. Mm -hmm. I also know that I, I worry quite a lot about what I think that matters. And I don't mean some sort of absurd, there'll be riots on the streets and, uh, and some of the, sort of the, the worst stuff you hear from sort of um, <laughs> nameless Brexit Trumpers who may have been on the stage before us. Um, but I do... I do sort of think you've got to be a little bit careful just chipping away at people's sort of faith that their vote matters. I and I guess um, uh, it's interesting, you, I mean, I, I, because I come from uh, the point of view that a lot of this is actually down to the Liberal Democrats anyway. Uh, and yes. I think uh, the party itself has not been great at owning up to its complicity in where no, we're it's at. it's all Min Campbell's fault. Uh, is it Min Campbell? I was going to trace it back to Paddy Ashdown, because, of course, uh, it was Paddy Ashdown who called for a referendum on the Maastricht Treaty back in the uh, early 1990s as a way of papering over some of the divisions that there were between, yeah. within the newly merged Liberal Democrat Party, between those who were anti-EU uh, and those who were pro-European. And then that referendum became quite a nice way for the party to be able to also bridge to its southwest yeah. voters, who were very Eurosceptic, and to any other part of the country that was a bit Eurosceptic, to be able to say, well, you may not uh, like Europe, but don't worry, you can still vote Liberal Democrat, because the worst that could happen is we would give you the referendum. And so you had the Liberal Democrats and James Goldsmith uh, and his referendum party, and then, of course, UKIP and that, Nigel Farage, united in pushing for an in-out referendum as the way in which we could settle this issue once and for all, and uh, without any further divisions. And that became part of the mainstream and, of course, led up to David Cameron's uh, pledge in 2012. And on which note, I wanted to ask you, um, because it's, it's still kind of a, a matter for debate, if the Liberal Democrats had done better in the 2015 election and got you know, 30, 40, 50 seats held onto that, and therefore a coalition with the Conservatives had been plausible in 2015, and if David Cameron had demanded that a referendum on the European Union, that in now referendum was a red line for the Conservatives this time, would Nick Clegg have gone for it? Would the Liberal Democrats have gone for it? Uh, in the end, it comes down to what would Nick have done. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that he would have said no to a coalition on those terms. Uh, and uh, so I spent the entirety of the 2015 general election hold up, still in government, writing preparation papers for coalition negotiations. You know, I have a lot of paperwork. We are unbelievably well prepared. Complete waste of time. Um, but... It's a great alternative history to be written there. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got, I've got draft coalition agreements with the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. They're totally fascinating. Um, but I... And so basically, Danny Alexander and David Laws uh, were, were, I think, a lot more keen than Nick and, and, and would repeatedly say to Nick, don't make a decision yet, you don't know. Uh, and Nick would say, fine, I won't make a decision yet, but I'm, 
I, 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 he just couldn't have done it. I move on this because at the time, and I've said it in the past, at the time I thought Nick might have agreed to it. I think the more I've spoken to people, the more, and frankly spoken to Nick, um, no, I don't think we've agreed to it. He was vehemently, and he was very against it at the time, mm -hmm. and he was rightly, and when it was caught, when Cameron was doing his thing, he was against it, and he did say, you will lose. Like, he was... So him, him and George Osborne were united on this? Well, yeah, coalition leads to what bedfellow. I mean, there was a long time when Ian Duncan Smith was the most coalition-friendly conservative, so he sort of get out, you would, you'd end up with weird alliances. But I, I don't think he would have. I mean, Nick... Um, where, uh, it used to cause us despair during the culture, certainly me, because Nick was always, he, you know, he hates the idea that he's some kind of rampant Europhile, but he's a rampant Europhile. <laughs> and he would always go, I want, to make, I want to make an intervention about Europe, and another speech about, yeah, and we'd always go, no, not another Europe speech, please. But I, I don't think he, I, I don't think he would have. I think, yeah. he, I think he, he was uneasy about where it was going. What's strange is that sometimes you get people criticising the Lib Dems for Cameron making that speech. Cameron promised in referendum, so it was enough that we could literally not do anything about it. We can't, coalition did not allow us to decide what the Conservative Party's policy in the next election was going to be. Mm. But, you know, I don't, I don't even up for it at all. Okay. So, spool forward two years to the 2017 election, and say the Liberal Democrats had won that or at least been a major player. Uh, won in, the 2017 election? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. it's a this is a hypothetical, <laughs> I stress. I'm not having delusions. This is a hypothetical. It's a question of what would the Liberal Democrat, what would you have wanted the Liberal Democrat position to be in that situation? Would it have been, you both hinted, that it's, it would be that kind of soft Brexit position? That's where you think that it's the only legitimate way in which you can respond to the referendum result and also maintain a close relationship with Europe. And yet, of course, when it was during the referendum campaign, it was ruled out by vote leave on the basis that they knew it would be attacked as you're still in Europe, but you are run by Europe. You don't have a say in the rules and regulations that are coming out of Europe, so you get the worst of both possible worlds. You're hemmed in by all the constraints of customs union. You can't make your own trade deals, and yet you still have to implement all the regulations that come along with it. So do you think that would have been a flyer? Do you think it is actually still a viable pro uh, proposition? I think it still is a viable proposition, um, uh, because actually coming out of the institutions, getting off the conveyor belt of further integration are... Prizes, I guess, if you think about it from a uh, if, from an anti-European perspective, I think I, I think Sean's right about the enormity of overruling a a democratic decision in a referendum. But it's always seemed to me that it, it could have been relatively uncontroversial to go to a second referendum on the details. Yeah. Um, and and if the prime minister, if Theresa May, you know, back in January, February, when her deal was still sort mm -hmm. of all right-ish, before it had lost quite so catastrophically. If she then had said, I believe in my deal, but I know I can't get it through, so I will say it's my deal subject to a referendum, she could have got that through Parliament, and, uh, and we would have been in a much better position. And I think that, perhaps as early as 2017, that would have been a reasonable kind of way forward. And Dominic, Dominic, go back to what we started talking about, Dominic Cummings at one point was talking about having a second referendum. Yeah. It's not, I, I don't and think, Jacob rees and so on, yeah. I mean... We can go down sort of umpteen different hypothetical routes. I do think now, I, look, I think quite a soft Brexit is actually sellable. I don't think we'll end up trying to sell one, but the, the, the government will. But I think Brexit now is whatever Boris Johnson decides he's prepared to call Brexit. Um, and there will be some hardcore who will say, I don't like 
you know, I know this isn't, we're still being ruled by Europe or whatever. I think more generally, you've got to remember, and we'll see this at the election, it's one of the most depressing things that always kicks in. The conservative media and everyone will, they'll all row in. They will all row in behind the Conservative Party because they're so desperate to stop Corbyn winning. And if he says, if Boris Johnson goes, this is Brexit, the country must back me, the Daily Mail and everyone else and the Sun will go back Boris and his Brexit deal, even if it's the softest Brexit. Do you think have. even the Daily Telegraph might back uh, Boris as well? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm hearing rumours that the Telegraph wow, is okay. um, going to be pro-Boris. Cool. Can't, can't guarantee it. But that, honestly, there is a part of me that is so furious about the fact that people will get in behind a softer Brexit under Boris Johnson than they would ever countenance under Theresa May just because he's a posh boy who, you know, makes jokes and, like, says stuff in Latin occasionally. And, 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 and the idea that you wouldn't listen to a woman but you will listen to this completely brainless twit of a man makes me just furious. You're such a fence-sitting Lib Dem, aren't you, uh, Polly? <laughs> Um, I, I say that point, but couldn't you also say that the reason Theresa May failed on that was because she was not a communicator. She didn't work out how to say it. So even something like the backstop, which was, by uh, any objective analysis, a diplomatic triumph for the British negotiators. Um, it was something the European Union really didn't want to concede, but did in the end. And yet that is not the popular perception uh, of the I backstop. I agree with you, because I think... We can tend to be quite we. I think sometimes people can be quite dismissive of the fact that the ability to communicate in whatever way people do it, like Boris Johnson is one kind of thing, like Tony Blair or whatever, we sort of sneer at that. But part of the job of a, certainly a prime minister, is to communicate to the country. That is partly of what they have, they have got to do. Theresa May basically became prime minister on the back of having not got anything wrong at the Home Office and kind of stayed in her bunker. And it doesn't, it doesn't sort of work. You have to be able to at some point be a communicator Whatever you do, Boris Johnson is, I've got some issues with Boris Johnson, how he communicates, I'll tell you about that in a second, but I don't, so it does anger me a bit, and I know what you mean, but at the same time it's like, well, that's what he does, he can sell things other people can't sell. You know, we saw at the election as well, that was the worst general election campaign I've ever seen in my life that the Conservative Party ran, um, and it was partly because they elected somebody who couldn't communicate, and that is part of the job, and if he's able to communicate and do a bit of a sales job, yeah, it's shallow, but that's part of it. My issue with Boris Johnson is, and the way he communicates, is his relationship to the truth is sketchy. Um, well, worse than that. I mean, and then people always go, oh, you live Dems tuition fees and whatever. Yeah, and we got punished and, and all the rest of it. But this is something different. It's not like breaking promises on policy or something. He will literally deny facts. And actually, number 10 will deny facts. They'll say, oh, we're not considering proroguing Parliament, and then do it. You know, there is a strange, a slight Rubicon's been crossed by number well, 10. Well, he can point to television cameras and say there is no media here. Yeah. You know, that's... <laughs> and it's getting noticed, and I think even the political lobby are, you know, are uneasy about, about some of this. And this, I think, does come, I think, from Dominic Cummings, who doesn't really, frankly, care about the media. That's, that's not an unhealthy thing, he's a strategist. But there is an attitude towards the truth uh, that I do find really quite a lot. This idea you can just, frankly, lie. And he does that. I think he's used to being able to bluster out to positions. And that is what really worries me about Boris Johnson. One of the things that really worries me about Boris Johnson is this sense that you can just go, yep, I'm just going to say this, and it's true because I believe <laughs> it. It's the worst extent of that. And look, people go, oh, politicians always lie and so on. 
the relationship between politicians and the truth can be tenuous. There are things, particularly like me, as when I like you're like a spin doctor, and you go, oh well, we're you know we're not actively considering that, or whatever. all phrases you use to try and wiggle around it. You always try and stay on the right line of not being actively dishonest. I think Boris Johnson is not as concerned with where that line is. And that's what worries me more. But like, if he can sell a deal, he can sell a deal. I think it's partly because Theresa May was a woman. I think it's partly because she's a terrible communicator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it I just depresses me that the facts of the policy are not really the the thing, the, the material consideration. You know, Boris Johnson was the foreign secretary who signed up to the joint communication that said we wouldn't have a hard border in Northern Ireland. And he was the foreign secretary uh, when the deal was agreed. And and then he just sort of changed his mind. And then you get this sense that he never even read the papers because, you know, who cares? And that, that, that total disregard for facts and detail, I think, I think is really problematic. And, and I, I worry that, I don't know, that our contempt for politicians has, has got to this level where we just rather have an entertainer because we assume that government's always going to be awful and never do anything good. So, meh. And I, I would rather somebody who actually, I don't know, bothered to read the papers before they made a decision. What you're seeing here, by the way, is you are seeing the classic special... There are two kinds of special advisor, ultimately. <laughs> there is a policy special advisor and a comms special advisor. And the policy special advisor will be like, read all these documents, and the comms on where we go, can you please describe this as if I was telling somebody in the pub? And this is now a debate that me and Polly have had since we first met about 13 years ago. <laughs> I don't, like, obviously, there needs, there needs to be the what's the version on the leaflet and what's the version in the speech. That's totally fine. But as the Prime Minister, no, you should also agree. take some interest or appoint people who take some interest just in the detail. Right, so um, the person who is in charge of public service reform in number 10, the special advisor, is an ex-Guido Fawkes journalist who has no experience in any policy writing, let alone actually in public services. And I, I just, the idea that, that somebody who's just been a journalist, uh, journalists are a fantastically important part of uh, of a society of a democracy, but it doesn't make you any good at working out how to run the NHS or schools better, and and for those to be the people he's chosen to appoint, that's so different from Tony Blair, who for all his faults appointed you know people like Michael Barber or Jonathan Powell to be somebody you could absolutely trust to be forensic about the detail and get the policy right. Boris Johnson clearly couldn't give a damn about whether the policy is right. He's interested in whether it looks good. Fair enough. This is a podcast with a Lib Dem flavour, so I feel I should bring it back, <laughs> to, back to Lib Dems. Um, you both, uh, well, there's a slight split between whether you're happy with revoke or not. Can I just pin you down, yes or no? Do you think the revoke policy from the Lib Dems is a good thing, yes or no, Polly? I think it's good for the party, uh, but <laughs> it would be bad if it was actually done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't that kind of got the party into trouble before? Yeah. <laughs> what, could, what could possibly go wrong? Absolutely. Uh, I, I just, like Sean said, we're in this sort of weird uh, political time where, sorry, you were asking for a one-word answer, but like, <laughs> but this weird political time where you've just got to take sides on this enormous issue of the day and uh, an extremist reactionary policy is going to get you places. You know, Caroline Lucas's response, which I presume is going to be on every Liberal Democrat leaflet, was, oh, the Green Party will stand up for the 17.4 million Leave voters. Well, great. I mean, that's a Lib Dem squeeze leaflet against the Greens. Just, you know, 
just why would you why would you, why would she say that? But nevertheless, she did, and she did because Joe Swinson had irritated her. The Labour Party, God only knows what their policy is. It's very hard to explain. Um, and I, so I think it works. And you know, to say this is what we'll do if we've got a majority, 326 seats, and we're targeting 200 seats, proves that it's not uh, intended to be delivered. But I, I do I worry about the kind of the macro political settlement when all of the political incentives are to grandstand and be reactionary. How do you ever get to a better way of running the country again? I honestly don't know. Yeah, I think you're being unfair to the Labour policy, which is very easy to explain, just very hard to justify. Uh, <laughs> Sean, your one-word answer, yes or no, to revoke. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 See, comms guy. Comms guy. Um, okay. I thought politically, I just yeah. thought it was brilliant. They announced it, and I was like, that's brilliant, that makes sense. Because um, what was worrying me... And I, look, I'm going to just dabble in the sort of shallow pools around the political positioning and so on. What was worrying me about the Lib Dem position before that was that it was very um, vulnerable to how the Labour Party was doing and was being perceived. So whilst the Labour Party was really in a mess on Brexit, it, you could see the sort of the Lib Dem surge and all the rest of it, and it felt great. Then you got the argument about prorogation of Parliament and suddenly Jeremy Corbyn sounding angry about that on the news, and suddenly it felt like he was quite pro-Romani. And I could almost sort of, I could, I could envisage all the people who'd come to us just slowly <laughs> ebbing back. What he's done is he's built a big bloody wall and said, yeah. they're not crossing that, we, have, we now own this territory. And that, politically, I think is great. It's simple, it's direct, it communicates something. I think in an age we have to pick a side, it, it works for many, many levels. Yes, if I then sort of sit back and sort of think about the implications of it, and, po and Polly's right, uh, like, the extent to which it's actually going to happen, I understand the concerns people have. As a political move, I think it was great. What you've got is the Labour Party now sort of saying things like, well, this is quite extreme, and you need to be more considered, and you need to look at both sides. And having spent an inordinate amount of time trying to sell Lib Dem messages, I can tell you that it's extremely difficult saying, let's not be one of the two extremes, let's try and be the sensible one in the middle. Like, that is really hard. Like, we're now in a good position to actually sort of sell something. And that's politics, is you've got to do a bit of that. I'm sorry, but it is. And it does move away from the Labour position, which is hard to justify, because it is that we're going to have a referendum. In the meantime, we're going to negotiate a much, much better deal with the European Union. Uh, even though the European Union then knows that we are going to campaign against the deal we're negotiating with them in that referendum. And that would be in the Lib Dem position as well, um, which is that somehow you get a better deal whilst yeah. saying you're going to campaign against the deal you're making. And both me and Polly worked on, um, you know, 2010, and I've worked on a few of them, like the election debates. And even if you can sort of assume they, maybe they happen, maybe they don't, but it's always, it's always useful for uh, when you're thinking about an election... When it goes to the Brexit question or the NHS question, how are you going to sum up where you stand? I was so I played Jeremy Corbyn in Tim Farron's debate prep at the last general election. You've got the jumper still. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, I was Leanne Woods, and I have to say I was great. <laughs> what about Wales? It was that a lot. There was lots of you don't have to do the accent. Um, <laughs> but, I had um, to do the accent. <laughs> But it was, it was a moment, actually, I was doing that, and I thought, they're going to do all right here, because every policy in that manifesto, you could basically go, bad thing is happening, it's happening because there isn't enough money, I'm going to raise more money by taxing rich people. And it was like, this is great. I can, and you could sort of tell, this will be good in an election. It just felt like they ha yeah. you had something. And it's the same with that policy. I can imagine Joe in a debate, summing up where she stands, and everyone will clap, 
and it will sound punchy, and I can imagine the Labour position feeling quite weird and quite difficult, and it will be a nightmare. And it is shallow, but it is part of what politics is, is to try and make those kind of decisions. And they've got a policy now that nails that on the biggest issue of the day. Yeah, I think it was a, I think it's a savvy move. So you're both feeling quite bullish about Lib Dem prospects. Uh, can I ask you to put a number yeah. where, your, mm. where your mouth is? What do you <laughs> think is actually going to happen in, in the election when it comes? Number of seats. What do you reckon? Well, I, I mean, it really does depend when the election comes. Because if there... If somehow a, a referendum happens instead and there's an election, you know, in, in six or nine months, I think a lot of the air has gone out of, uh, of this being the big divide and, and, the, and the cleverness of the positioning. But if an election is the thing that happens in the next couple of months and it's before Brexit has happened, I'm going to go for 72. 72. Right. That's a very precise number. The year John. my husband was born. Polly is much <laughs> more positive than me. Um, I... I think we're going to get a number that post-2015 we'd have bitten your arm off for, but that when the election comes, people go, oh, isn't that a bit disappointing? I think we'll get something like 35 to 40 seats. Um, and while, while we should go, this is incredible, we're now nicely positioned to really grow. We'll have got loads of good second places, not constituencies. I think there might almost be a sense of disappointment because of that, but this, this was the breakthrough moment. Um, I partly say that because of sort of experience of sort of previous Lib Dem sort of campaigns, Lib Dem elections, where you well, get that. Most famously after Iraq and the 2000s. Yeah, and Iraq, and also with um, 2015, with Nick and so on, and Clegg Mania and all the rest of it, even though the polls were starting to slip, when the exit polls came out, I'm thinking, that can't be right. But it was right. And I think it's, hard, it's so hard as Lib Dem. I don't, I'm not asking everyone to like, you know, break out the violence. It is so hard as a Lib You have to fight bloody hard for years to win every single seat. And the odds are against you, even when all this thing goes on. And I, I think they'll, I could see them getting to like 35, 40 seats, I said. And this is a bit sort of gut instinct rather than intense statistical analysis. Um, and I think that'll be fine and that'll be good. But people might feel a bit disappointed. Um, and do you think that disappointment will be because it's hard to imagine a better set of circumstances in which any third party, let's say it's the Liberal Democrats in this case, could be facing an election you've got a Conservative Party pursuing a policy that is against a yes. lot of its electoral base, in particular in the southern and suburban and the southwest areas. You've got the Labour Party, which is riven and has, uh, according to the polls, the most unpopular leader of the opposition in uh, history. And you have this incredibly divisive issue on which the Lib Dems have put yeah. all their money on one side of that. So it will feel like, well, side. if it's not now, when? Exactly. And I think, I do understand that. I think there are... But Iraq's another example. Issues like this do, you know, they do come along. And part, part of the trick for Lib Dems, I think, is making sure you're strong enough to take advantage of them when that moment comes. I, I, always, go, I always go back to 20... I, I think you, can all, you have to go back, I suppose partly just because of my personal experience and Polly's personal experience. I always find myself going back to 2010. I always think coalition came too early. It came, a, it came around too early. Actually, if we probably weren't quite in the right position for coalition at that time... And if we, there hadn't been a coalition and we had just grown a bit or stayed where we were and then this had happened, then I would be saying, this is it. This is where you charge through. When you're building up from that low base, there's just some, there is some ar arithmetic in those seats where we're not close seconds, I think, in enough seats to sweep through. 
and it could be, like, Polly could be right, because it could all land right, and then you get mm. up into the 70 range. That's totally doable. What I, there's an extra worry that I have is, and you saw this with, the, with Nick in 2010, people saw those polls and went, we're going to win everywhere. And suddenly there's a real yeah. difficulty in HQ, because you were telling people, you've got to go to this seat. And they're going, are you kidding me? The Sunday Times says we're going to be in government. I'm going to go and win this one. And we, all of a sudden, the resources dispersed. And so it's going to be quite hard, I think, to focus on the actual seats we can win if you get a bit of hype. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of difficulties. And I, I always basically take what I want and knock a load of seats off because I'm just a massive pessimist as well. All of that is true, but the difference between this and Iraq, which is why it comes to, is Brexit still actually alive? Could it be yeah. decisive? Um, 2017 was supposed to be a sort of Brexit election, but the Lib Dems had a bad leader and the, a bad policy. So, you know, it, it, it didn't have that cut through. This... This, if an election happens in the next couple of months before Brexit, it will feel like it is a referendum. And the Liberal Democrats are the only party that is absolutely decisively on one side of that Can referendum. I say what I think the unknown factor is? And the unknown factor is Jo Swinson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, who, I, I don't say unknown factor is a negative thing. I mean, she's still unknown by the vast majority of the country. Um, a big advantage for the Liberal Democrats when it comes to a general election is suddenly their leader gets put into a position of prominence that they have not enjoyed before. And I think with Joe, we have a leader who is a good communicator, comes across as quite as young, as vibrant, as not like a lot of other politicians, more like a normal person. There is a sort of unknown that you could actually, this person could just go in the middle of the campaign, and it's he's suddenly on the news every day, and you don't know where that leads. And it's nearly always a first-time leader, so you think back yes, to Nick Clegg exactly. in 2010, to an extent Nicola Sturgeon, in 2015, and then, of course, Corbyn in 2017. There's always this thing where, and it's, even with Corbyn, of a well-known person, they're suddenly on TV all the time, mm -hmm. and suddenly people go, he doesn't seem like an insane Stalinist. He seems, you know, I quite like him. Yeah. So uh, that fir you, when you're not been in that position of prominence before, it's an extraordinary test. It's incredibly grueling and tough for any political leader. But it's also a moment where a lot of the country can just wake up and go, I like that person. So that's a big opportunity. Mm. I'm, see, I'm trying to move away from um, having got pretty much every prediction I've made cataclysmically <laughs> wrong. I really try and move away from making these kind of confident, bold predictions. But if you force me, I'll end up there. So you're hedging your bets. Oh, I think you have to. I think one of the... In politics more generally, one of the things that... It staggers me that people still do this. And there are some people who don't. Stephen Bush, who's here today, is like, oh, actually a really good example of somebody who doesn't do this. The way that you still get commentators and pundits and all the rest of it who will still make incredibly confident predictions about what's going to happen mm -hmm. in politics, even though we've got so many wrong in the past and so often just basing it on gut instinct. You know, it's not, it's extremely hard to do. So I always try and hedge my bets because I think that's sensible. But you haven't hedged your he bets, I think, as well as Chuck Ertenmuller, uh, the, the Lib Dem MP now, <laughs> uh, because his prediction when he was asked was up to 200 mm. Lib Dem MPs. And I think the phrase up to is a wonderful phrase. Up to, yeah. up to is a great... It's journalese. Up to is one of those phrases where you can... It's a great bit of... Lib up Dems, to 30 women. Yeah, up to... <laughs> uh, up to 30. <laughs> it was no more than... No more Sorry. than... Sorry. Um, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's one of those phrases like when you're in journalism, you go, this thing happened after something else happened. There might not be any causal link between the two of them. Yeah. So up to... I mean, we could win up to 640 or so. <laughs> On that positive note, <laughs> I'm going to say thank you very much to Bar Chart's uh, special guests, Polly McKenzie and Sean Kemp. I hope you've 
enjoy listening, both those who are physically present as, those, as well as those of you listening through your ear at the moment. Do spread the word far and wide to all of those that you know to uh, help them discover it by uh, rating it and liking it and so on. But it's just time for me to say thank you uh, to our guests, Polly McKenzie and Sean Kent. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.